Matthew chapter 19. I kind of thought earlier in the week of going in a different direction, but as I was sitting throughout the week, partly doing my daily devotional reading, but also kind of getting my gears thinking about the next couple of weeks, with next week considering Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he's preparing for the final week of his life before going to the cross, and then Good Friday when we're going to be thinking about the passion, the passion of our Lord Jesus. Um, I want us this morning to begin getting our hearts prepared for that for the next couple of weeks. In Matthew 19, Jesus is winding down his earthly ministry. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He has an encounter with the Pharisees as they try to paint him into a corner about divorce. People were bringing their children to the Lord Jesus, and the disciples tried to stop them. They tried to stop the parents as they were doing so. They didn't want Jesus to be bothered with little children, and the Lord Jesus tells the disciples, suffer the little children to come unto me. Let them come. Don't forbid them to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And it is believed that it was Jesus' speaking of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, that enticed the conversation that we're going to think about this morning with the rich young ruler. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're very, very familiar with this story. You see three accounts of it in the Gospels, here in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18. And we'll reference those other two passages as well through this. So I want you to look with me this morning at Matthew chapter 19. I want to read to your hearing verses 16 through 26. And those of you that like to take notes may title this the rich young ruler, but I titled the message Jesus the Evangelist. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 16. Hear now the word of the true and living God. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I might that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell Go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard, but when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, 
we do pray that since we have just now heard your inspired, infallible, and inerrant word, we pray that you would pour out your blessings not just upon the reading of it, but upon the hearing and the proclamation of it. Father, we pray this day that you would bring us all into focus of you and your word, your truths, that we would give no thought for the rest of the day or tomorrow, that distractions would be brought to a close, that any spirit that is not of you be cast away from this place, that we would all be here and now before you. And Father, that your word would go forth and accomplish what you intend for it to do. Give us eyes to see, give us hearts to receive, give us wills to obey. All these things we have in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. The Lord was used to a lot of people being around him, crowding, crowding him, throngs of people coming about him and encircling him, pushing one another, trying to get close to Jesus, people screaming at him out of the agony of their afflictions, the leper crying, Lord, help us, or the blind and the deaf crying out to him in their need. If we look at this story, and not only in Matthew's gospel, but compared to the accounts given to us by Mark and Luke, we see this man known as the rich young ruler came to see Jesus, not in a casual manner, but with intensity, with intensity about him. Listen to what the Bible says in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, and he was setting out on, a, as he was setting out on a journey, he being Jesus, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That man did not come seeking to be healed of a physical ailment. He wasn't sick as much as he was curious. And through this brief conversation that this young man has with Christ, we can glean a wealth of knowledge from, a wealth of spiritual truths. In these 10 verses, I've divided the outline into five points, five points. The presumption, the precise definition and method, the pride, the proof, and the parable. Verse 16, let's look at the presumption. Look what it says. It says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit, that I may have eternal life? The first thing that I want us to do, the first step that I want us to take to get a get the best understanding of this text is let's examine what these each of these passages, each three passages tell us about this young man known as the rich young ruler. In verse 22, we're told just that, that he's rich. He had money, land, livestock, or all the above. He was wealthy. We're told in verse 20 that he was a young man. He was young. So he had all of his strength. He's in the prime of his life. He's strong. He's healthy. He lacks nothing physically. And by asking the question, what must I do, shows us that he must have been a hard worker. He must have attained part of his wealth through inheritance, and he may have uh, um, worked hard to build the rest of it. And he's also a ruler. The, the word ruler is used in Luke 18, verse 18, where it says that a ruler questioned him. The man is described as a ruler that means he was some type of magistrate. Maybe he had some type of um, duty or, or uh, role, prominent role within the synagogue because no Roman ruler would address Jesus as teacher or master. So from an earthly position, this young man had what everybody else wants and what everybody of the world seeks to attain, wealth, 
All the wealth that he could ever need, youth, and we'll, we'll lump good health into that. And he had power and authority, right? That's what everybody of the world wanted at that time. Has, any, has much changed since the first century? No, no. People still, to this day, chase wealth, chase the dollar. People of the world desire wealth. You never hear anyone say, you know, I'd really just like to scrape by. You know, I really would just like to be dirt poor. You don't hear anybody say that. Now, that might be what the circumstances are, but no one really sets out to do that. Everybody wants to be filthy rich. That's why people seek high-paying careers. That is why people desire to desire limelight positions such as actors and actresses, athletes, professional singers, songwriters, and musicians, because they want the big money that comes with it. Now, they can talk all they want to about the art and the craft of it and the love of the game. They want the money that comes along with it. They want the prominence that comes along with it. Our culture is driven by a desire to be rich. That's why people play the lottery, hoping that those couple of bucks will be turned into several million. Man has a desire, a fleshly desire to chase wealth. How about youth and health, right? Nobody wants to get old. That's why so many people lie about their age. That's why people pursue things like plastic surgery and dyeing their hair. Why don't I dye mine? Because I don't, I don't need to. Would I, like, would I like for my hair to still be sandy brown, sandy blonde? Yeah, but I'm married. I accomplished the goal. I won the prize, right? <laughs> right? I don't, I don't need to impress anybody. I've impressed all that I've ever, ever going to need to impress. And that young lady right there. But people don't like the thought of getting old. They want to do everything they can to try to hold back the hands of time. They don't want, why? Because they don't want to die. At the heart, and at the heart of the fear of death is the fear of having to stand before the Lord and have to answer for how they have lived. He also, the young man also, he was rich. He was young. He had all of his health. And he was a ruler, so he had prominence. He had authority. Along with the desire for wealth comes a desire for power as well. To have the capability to have people under your authority. That's intoxicating for many. You want proof of that? Look at the political arena. When politicians spend millions of dollars to get a job that pays thousands. So on paper, this man had it all, but he wasn't satisfied. In one sense, he's, he's, he's wise beyond his years because he realized that he did not hold control of his future. Not absolutely. Everything that he had going for him, he did not control his future. He did not have security forever. Now, we don't know how much he knew about Jesus. We don't know whether he heard him preach or saw him perform miracles. Judging by the context of the passage, he may have heard him preach and may have heard him when he was uh, uh, talking about the kingdom of God. So this young man comes to Jesus in a haste and with purpose to ask the question that mankind has been asking since the fall. What do I have to do to have eternal life? 
What must I do to get into the kingdom of God? What must I do to live forever? In all three accounts, the young man asked a question like this, good teacher or master, master means teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Some critics look at this in the way Jesus answers. Look what he says. This is why I callest thou me good. There is none good but one that is God. Some look at this and think that Jesus, that because of the way Jesus answers the young man, that he is rejecting, he is denying that he is God. Because, and he, he, he's rejecting the, um, appellation that he was a good teacher, so therefore he must be denying his deity. Not so. Jesus is teaching the young man that all but God are sinners. Everyone but God is a sinner. So Jesus is saying to the young man, in a sense, only God is good. So then by you calling me good, do you believe that I am God? Well, the answer to that question is yes. But that's not how the rich young ruler intended that statement. He didn't know. He was just being kind and polite and thinking that Jesus was just merely a good, a good human being because of the way that he taught, because he taught with authority and thinks, hey, this guy's got it figured out. He must have eternal life and he can tell me how to get it too. But it causes us to pause and think about how does the world define good and how does the Bible define good? How does the world define good? Completely backward. Completely opposite from the way the Bible does. You look at the culture and every manner of thing that is against the word of God, the culture celebrates and calls good. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's our culture. Call the most wicked, horrendous things good. Celebrate them. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light, light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's how the world defines good. How does the Bible define good? God. The triune God of Scripture is the only one that is good and the only source of true goodness. First, Chron First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness endures forever. Psalm 25, verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the only goodness that is ascribed to us, His church, is the Holy Spirit the third part of the Godhead within us and when we are being obedient to accomplish His will. Not a works-based salvation, but as I've said many times over the last several weeks, we don't have a works-based salvation, but we have a salvation that goes to work. We are saved to work. The world will try to define goodness by acts of what they consider kindness. Holding the door open, giving money to charity. Not, I'm not saying, saying that we shouldn't do things like that. But where does that good come from? It's all based from traced all the way back to the author and the creator of all things, God Almighty. And when we try to do things and the world just tries to, you know, paint this picture that if I do more worldly good, then I do bad, then it'll all wash out in the end. 
But the Bible tells us that even our deeds, even our best deeds, our most well laid out good works are nothing but filthy rags to a just and holy God. That is the false presumption that the world makes. And so did this rich young man. Point number two. Look at the second part of, uh, look at verse 17 and through verse 19. He says, uh, why, why callest me good? There is none good. There is none good but God, but one that is God. So we're going to see the precise definition of goodness and the precise method of something. The answer that Jesus gives the rich young ruler doesn't just set the bar high. It shows us that it's completely unattainable by our own means. Obtaining eternal life and salvation is not possible on our own. Look what it, look what it says again. Why callest thou me good? There is none good. That, there's no exceptions in that. We, in the world, we have this false idea. Well, as long as I'm better than what society defines as the wicked of the wickedest, then I'm good, then I'm, I'm fine. And everybody winds up comparing themselves to Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Osama bin Laden, and thinks as long as I'm not a mass murderer, I'm fine. God says there is none good, none but God. There is none good but God. So we see the precise definition. Only God is good. That shows us that genuine goodness is not attainable on our own. Sure, we use terms like, well, he's a good man. She's a good woman. He or she is a good child. But none of us are truly good because we're all sinners at heart. We all have a corrupt, fallen nature given to us from our first father, Adam. Jesus points that out to the young man, that there is none truly good but God. Let me read Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. It says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. When God really wants to get a message across in the Bible, he's going to tell you more than once. And we see this over and over and over. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So we see the precise definition for what biblical goodness is, and that's God. And we also see in this passage the proper method, the precise method For how to witness to someone, there is a false popular way. First, let me read what the Lord Jesus says. He says, there is none good but one that is God. But if thou will enter into life, if if you're going to enter into uh, eternal life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Keep them all. The young man says, which ones? Jesus says, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, which means thou shalt not lie. Honor thy father and thy mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. So there is a false, popular way in mainline Christianity where people like to say something that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Really? Ask the disciples about how wonderful God's plan was for their life. Ask Stephen. What kind of a plan did God have for Stephen? Stephen. 
I'm sure it is tremendous now and it's only going to get better after the resurrection and after, after the, the, the day of judgment. But it began, with a, it began by being stoned to death. We don't see that method in the Bible where people are told, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If you tell someone who was lost, who is lost and in their sin and loves their sin, if they hear that, all they're going to do is just get reassurance that, hey, I'm fine. I'm completely fine doing what I'm doing. I'm completely fine in the state that I am, that I'm in. God loves me and has a wonderful plan for that, for my life. That's great because I love me and I've got a wonderful plan for my life. And my plan and God's plan, if it doesn't jihaw, then I'll just kick his to the curb and keep mine. And because he loves me, it's going to be fine, right? That's the mindset of, of that teaching. Telling a person, telling a lost person that God loves them only makes them comfortable in their sin. They have to first be shown that they have personally, not collectively with a bunch of people, but personally have sinned and offended Almighty God. Jesus Christ is the cure for the disease. No one's going re to receive the cure unless they're first shown that they're sick. If you come up to me, and you tell me, hey, Jared, here's this antidote. Take it. I'm going to look at you and say, what for? What do, I, what do I need to take that for? I exercise. I need to do a little more. I take vitamins every day. I try to eat somewhat right. What do I need to take that for? Out of your mind? But if you come up to me and say, Jared, you know, you were just eating in that restaurant. And there was bacteria in that food. And it's so poisonous and it's so potent that you're going to die within hours. If you don't take this, I'm going to knock it out of your hand trying to get it down my throat. People have to be shown that they're sick before they will take the cure. And that is what Jesus is doing in this conversation with the young man, with the rich young ruler. Jesus says, if you wish to enter into eternal life, or, or, then you must be complete. Be perfect. Keep the commandments. Jesus lists some of the Ten Commandments. Take note of the ones that he listed. He does not begin with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before him. He's going to deal with that later on in the conversation. And Jesus is not saying that these are the most important of all the commandments. Jesus is displaying how God judges holiness. For on that great day, God will judge all mankind by his perfect law. And there are many in Christianity today that think that we need to completely unhitch from the Old Testament, from the law. They say that we have no use for the law as, as New Testament Christians. That's false. The law is Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Christ did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So what is Jesus doing by listing the commandments? He's dealing with that young man's conscience. He's dealing with that young man's conscience because God writes his laws upon our hearts. Romans 2.15. He shows the young man God's standard for perfection. And he says, if you're going to enter into God's holy heaven, that it must be because you're perfect. It must be because you have kept the law perfectly and completely. God will not allow sin to be in his presence. 
He tells the young man, you must keep the Ten Commandments. You must keep all the law, all of it, every word of it, all the time for all your life. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. So you break one commandment and you are guilty of breaking them all. You break one, you've broken them all. And there are no do-overs. There's no such thing as starting over and there's no new tomorrow. There is no grace in the law. You get one shot at it and once you violate it, you're out and condemned. There's no hope in the law. God commands and He deserves perfection and it is only perfection that will be in heaven. It is only perfection that will escape eternity in hell. And if you're thinking, man, that's impossible, you're right. You were right. There is no way with our cursed and fallen nature to keep the entire Ten Commandments in its fullness from birth to death without breaking them millions upon millions of times over. Plus, as you see in the Sermon on the Mount, the the Lord Jesus describes that the law goes further than, than just outward action, but down to the depths and the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Lust is seen as, a, as the very act of adultery. Hatred and unjust anger is seen as murder. But let's just say for the sake of argument, let's just say for the sake of argument that it were possible that you were able to just discipline yourself enough to never break a commandment in thought, word, and deed. It's not possible, but let's just say for the sake of argument that it is, that you're able to just discipline yourself never to sin. You stand before God, you will still be condemned. Because we inherit the sin curse from our first father, Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, death through sin, and so death spread to some, no, to all men. That curse runs so, so far and so deep and so broad, and it will not be done and killed and finished until Christ returns. We are hemmed up and hemmed in on every side with sin. Guilt, 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 guilt before God. The perfection that God commands and the perfection that God deserves, we can't provide. It's just impossible we can't. But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famed Welsh uh, pastor who labored in London during uh, World War II and many, many years after that, once said, thank God for the butts of the Bible. We're condemned. We have no utter way of keeping the law perfectly to give that perfection that God deserves and that he commands. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made provision that a stand-in, that a substitute, take our punishment and take our place on our behalf. Listen to these words in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. It says, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sin hath quickened us. He hath made us alive together with Christ Jesus by grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding 
riches of His grace in His kindness to us, in His kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift, gift, gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Christ did what we could not do in fulfilling the law in its entirety, completely. Everything that you read about from Genesis to Leviticus, all the Ten Commandments, everything and all the, the sundry laws, the ceremonial laws, all the do's and all the don'ts, Jesus Christ fulfilled it all. He is the depiction and the fulfillment of all the law. Jesus fulfilled them all and he satisfied the Father's wrath being perfect, the perfect sacrifice on the behalf of sinners. So now, what is the purpose of the law now that Christ has fulfilled it? It's to stop the mouth and show that we're guilty before God and to drive us to Jesus that's what it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable, may be guilty before God. That's the purpose of the law. Stop the mouth and to show that we are guilty before God. And once a person becomes a Christian, once a person becomes saved, what is the law after that? It's still the schoolmaster to show us how we have sinned and how much more we still need to depend upon Christ to become more like him. Point number three, pride. Verse 20. Look what it says. It says, the young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. He says, all these things have I kept. You could... Bring that home to us here in the 21st century. You talk to people like that, and, and, and you, this is usually the answer that they give. Oh, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Everyone usually has a pretty high self-image that they, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm, you know, not as bad as such and such, right? This is the pride and the arrogance of this rich young man. He says, man, I've done all that. I've kept all of those since I was a kid. That was a lie. That was a lie. And so he, he's telling a lie. There's no way he could have kept them all. There's no way he could have kept the Ten Commandments from the time he got out of bed that day. So he's just violated one of the commandments by lying and thus violating them all. Right? Obviously, the rich young ruler missed out on hearing the Sermon of the Mount because he did not realize that God looks upon the heart along with the action. So you may discipline yourself to keep the actions under, the, under control, but the heart is still in need of changing. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? People like to use it. Well, God knows my heart. Yes, he sure does. He knows it fully and thoroughly and better than we do. A person will not make it to heaven with their natural sin-cursed fallen heart. They got to have a heart transplant. So this young man says, man, I've, I've, I've done that and then some. What else do I need to do? What else do I, do I need to do? This young man had religion. He's like the Pharisees that were, Jesus describes them as whitewashed tombs. He, they have disciplined the outside to be very beautiful, right? He's disciplined the outside to not to, to obey all the do's and don'ts, but inside he's full of dead man's bones. And his prideful statement dismissing 
The holy law of God proves that. Man, I'm, I've done that. He didn't even pause to think about it. He's like, yeah, yeah. Done that, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. What, what else you got? And the Lord Jesus is getting ready to burst the rich man, the rich young ruler's uh, bubble of pride. Point number four. We see the proof. Verses 21 and 22. Look what, look what Jesus says. Jesus said unto him, if thou wilt be perfect, if you're going to be complete, if you're going to be perfect, go and sell uh, go and sell that thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You want to be perfect? You want to be complete? Go sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, this is what you got to do. Jesus is saying that if you do this, this will prove that you have the mindset, the right mindset about the wealth that you have. And therefore, giving it away won't bother you at all. So the young man fails the test proving, one, that the young man was not blameless at all as far as the law was concerned because he was guilty of loving himself and his wealth more than his neighbors. Secondly, it proved that he lacked true faith, which involves a willingness to surrender all to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is not teaching salvation by generosity. Giving everything you got away doesn't, doesn't give you salvation. But Jesus is demanding that the young man give him first place. Let me ask you, how is he with you this morning? Is Jesus Christ the first person in your life? Does he have first place in your life or does someone or something else have it? The Lord Jesus revealed to this young man his pet sin. His pet sin was his money. It was his wealth. It was his authority. It was his power. What about you? Do you have a Jonah in the boat? Do you have something that's separating you and the Lord? Be done with it. Take note of what it says in verse 21. It says, Jesus said unto them, If thou wilt be perfect, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. It speaks to the radical nature of Christianity. The Lord Jesus Christ must be the very most important person in our life. He should be more important to you than your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your siblings, your parents. He must be more important to you than anything that you own. To the degree that if you were called upon to lose it for Him, you'd happily turn loose of it. Even at the expense of your own life. This young man fails the test. He fails the test in verse 22. Look what it says. It says, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This young man who had just claimed to have kept the Ten Commandments from his youth. And so Jesus goes back to commandment number one and he deals with that. He says, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before the one true living God. And so by this man walking away proves God was, not the, God was not God in his life. The real God, the true God, the God of the Bible was not God in his life. His stuff was. His money was. His prominence was. His position. Jesus tested the young man to give it all away. But instead of giving away the wealth, he ends up giving away the kingdom. He set before him with the opportunity to walk with the second part of the Godhead in the flesh. But he would rather keep his stuff. 
And see, we see that a lot. Everyone wants to go to heaven. They want to be just like Elijah and Enoch. They want to have it comfortable and cushy while we're here and just translate right on up there. Get right into a, a chariot on fire and right, right into heaven. And never have to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We're told so many times, this is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through here. We're the illegal aliens if you get down to it. This world is not our home. And we're not to get caught in the pitfalls and the traps of stuff and other people. Yes, other people are blessings. I love my wife. I love my children. But he comes first. He has to. He must. And if he doesn't, I'm not going to love them properly. So this young man fails the test. His money was his God. But look what it says in verse 23. We get to the parable. We get to the parable. Jesus says, but when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It's believed that in the ancient world, you know, there was a particular narrow gate among the many gates around Jerusalem, and one of them was referred to as the eye of a needle. And sometimes merchants would try to get their camels through that narrow gate of the city. And when they wouldn't fit, they'd have to take everything off of that camel, try to get the camel on its knees and crawl on its knees through that gate. But I just like to think of it the, the way that most of us have thought about it since hearing this passage. I'm taking a camel, trying to get it through the eye of a sewing needle. There's no way in the world that's going to happen. There's no way in the world that is going to happen. Jesus says that is how difficult it is for the wealthy to get into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because when you have all that you need at your disposal, what need do you have of God? What need do you have of Christ? So sadly, most people that have wealth, their wealth is their God. In verse 25, the disciples asked the question, well, then who can be saved? Who then can be saved? Because it was believed that wealth was blessing from God, that if a person was wealthy, that it was because they were blessed by God. That's not always so. No one can be saved by their wealth or by their works. And that's what the Lord has been saying through this passage. Salvation cannot be obtained by earthly means. John chapter 6, verse 28, Therefore they said to him, What should we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in Christ and his work, his finished work. Verse 26, look what it says. The disciples asked, Who then, who then can be saved? And Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men, this is impossible. On your own labors, on your own merits, it is impossible. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and clean yourself up to gain the favor of God, let alone get into heaven. There must be a repentance, which means change of mind resulting in a change of action. 
to see yourself as the destitute rebel that has committed high treason against the most, the only one and most high God, and then to throw yourself upon his, his mercy, asking, asking for forgiveness and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. You cannot do it on your own, and you can't do it for someone else. Even if we faithfully and correctly explain a per- to a person their need for Christ, it's up to him to draw them to repentance. We can lead them to the water, but we cannot make them drink. We can want it for them. We can pray and we should for God to do in their hearts what he has done in ours, but we can't do it. But be encouraged what it says right there. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Be encouraged. All things are possible with God. That means that we don't need to give up on the things that we're praying about or the people that we're praying for. Keep praying. Keep interceding. Nothing is too hard for God. No sinner is too far out of his reach. Our God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, and above all that you and I could ever ask or think. With God, all things are possible. With man, it's impossible. It is impossible. We can't do anything. It's an old song. I can't even walk without you holding my hand. We can't. We can't. With men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. Father, we do pray that we would rest in that great promise, that guarantee that all things are possible with you. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. Help us to pray and intercede. Help us to love on those that we know that are outside of Christ and continue to show them the words from your word that would lead them to eternal life. But Lord, we can't do it. We can't. We don't have the power. We don't have the capability. All that we have to do, all that we have is the responsibility to be conduits, to be messengers, and leave the rest to you. And we have that great promise not to ever give up on it. You are indeed able to do far, far, far more than we could ever ask or think. With men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Thank you for that great promise that we can rest in. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.